0: Can you meet me in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 12, please, as we continue in our Bible study in the book of Deuteronomy? So far we've covered a lot in this book, but there's still so much to touch on. In chapter 12, you can tell from the first verse that Moses is now about to introduce a fresh batch of instructions for the people of Israel before they enter into the promised land. And we've heard these verses so many times before in this book so far. So you read it in verse 1, it says, These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Again, we've heard this plenty of times. I'm about to tell you some things that you need to know before you enter into Canaan that will provide sustenance for longevity in the will of God for your lives. And if you've ever read Deuteronomy, you've passed through this chapter and you've probably thought that there is no relevance to how this applies to my life. It deals with how they have to go to a specific location to, to worship. It deals with how they're supposed to eat certain meats. And maybe there are some verses here and there They say, okay, I can see how that relates to me. But if we really look underneath it, remember, whenever we come to a text where we feel like it has no relevance to our lives, there is one question that can be used as a tool to glean some truth. And that is this, what does this tell me about God? What is this portion of Scripture? Although it's about laws that don't apply to us in the New Covenant, what does this portion of Scripture tell me about the Lord? And if there's any focus in chapter 12, the instructions are about worship. There are guidelines in this chapter that deal with how one ought to worship the Lord. And though the practice might be different because it's a different covenant, the principle is still the same, and it is for us. And we see that in verse 4. Look down in your Bibles, would you please, and see. It says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. If you have the King James, it says, you shall not do this unto the Lord. Or you have the NASB, it will say, you shall not act like this towards the Lord. But the idea is still the same. It's speaking about how one ought to properly relate to God. Question, Bible study? It's Bible study, we can ask questions. When you hear worship, that word, what comes to your mind? Yeah, and you can, you can, this is, you can, it's interactive, you can say it out loud. I heard singing, sure. Anything else? Giving unto the Lord, sure. Absolutely. What is worship? How do I know if I'm a worshiper and how do I know if I'm really worshiping God? That's an important thing to define, unless we do something that's in vain. Worship. How do I know I'm a worshiper? How would I know if I'm truly giving true, genuine, pure worship unto God? So we heard singing and giving. Meditation then upon the Lord, that includes worship. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Isaac. It's genuine if you do it in spirit and in truth. That's an important note. So you mentioned that has to be done in spirit and in truth. So there needs to be a framework of how I do my things concerning worship. Absolutely. Let me ask it this way: Is it possible to sing? Is it possible to give? Is it possible to preach? Is it possible to vacuum the floor? Is it possible to do any of these external things and not be true worship? So if it's not from the heart, then it's not true worship. Is that true? Worship has two components. There is an internal component and an external component. The internal component of worship is this. To know that I am worshiping God is not even something I do in a moment necessarily. It manifests in moments, but true worship is a lifelong heart posture that treasures and esteems God above all other things, including people, including possessions, and including pursuits. It is a life long settled revelation on the throne of my heart that elevates the Lord as supreme and as transcendent and as worthy above all other things. That's the internal component. Now from that internal reality of worship, it will manifest in different expressions such as acknowledging God, singing to God, Serving God, relating to God in action, including sacrifice. But if I don't have the internal, then whatever I do external, Jesus says, is vain. It literally equates to nothing. And the second component, the external, because the the first part we're going to deal with at the end. Proving that if we don't have the heart, it doesn't matter what we do. We're going to deal with that at the end. But right now, how do I know that? There is expressive worship. Well, it's in your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 15, and 16 categorizes worship in two different sets. Look what the Bible says. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, okay, so what is my, this is Old Testament language. My sacrifice to God. What does that look like in the new covenant? He says, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So, expressive worship, number one, deals with my lips. Right here. Right here. Worship includes this. Acknowledging his name. When I tell people about him, that's worship to a a degree. But when I declare to him in song, when I speak to him in prayer, that is worship it often stuns me to see believers on a consistent basis who refuse to sing in a worship service. Because that is robbing God of what is due unto Him, and that is worship. Now, I agree, I will not sing to a song that I do not believe is theologically true. We have to be a people that know what we're saying to God and not just parroting everything. And so if I'm seeing something on a screen that says something that is not true about God, I'm not going to say it. But when there's something true about God, and I refuse to sing to Him, I am taking from Him what is due unto Him, that is a sacrifice of praise, well I don't feel like it, well that's why it's called a sacrifice, it's a sacrifice of praise, that I'm going to declare the goodness of God, I'm going to thank the Lord, thank you Lord, even if I don't feel like thanking the Lord, so there is an element in which we sacrifice. When it comes to our praise. But we still give him what is due unto him. That is the first component. But then we look on and it says here. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So then there is this component. My lips. But then there are my hands and my feet. And what do I do with my body in serving others in the name of God. As a representative of God. As an ambassador of Christ. That is in itself worship. And so there's an element of my lips and there's a fruit of my hands and of my actions that all encompasses the reality of my expression of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise unto God. Now when we come to Deuteronomy 12, God gives the Israelites guidelines to worship. And again, it's very specific in their day because they were under the Old Covenant and they were under a theocracy. God was the ruler and their direct king. There wasn't a human government necessarily. God was their direct king. Order giver. He was the direct ruler and to whom they had to give an account to and obey. So then, that's a little different for us, but there are still truths that we can pull out. So here are the, here's the point of this Bible study. Guidelines to worship according to Deuteronomy chapter 12. What is God saying through these instructions that I can apply to my life? So we read from verse 2. Look what the Lord says. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess, serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, pause, what these false worshipers would do is that they would go to high hills and mountains and they would plant their idols because they thought physically as they would elevate an altitude, they were actually getting closer to God. Verse three, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. Here's the first instruction and guideline for true and genuine worship before God destroy idols. Now, they are under a theocracy. They are under a government in which the land was directly governed by God himself and God had the right to give his people the instructions to go to their neighbors who were in that land that belonged to God and say, tear down their places of worship, tear down their idols, tear down their pillars, get rid of it all. We are in the new covenant. We can't do that. We don't have any mandate by God to go into a different place of worship and destroy it or burn it. That, that's not... Any command in light of scripture for us. What we are called to do as believers is live peaceably among men and persuade them to worship the true and living God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're called to do. So I have no mandate to do this in the physical sense, but I do have a mandate throughout the Bible to do what they're supposed to do in my heart. In my heart. That I am supposed to examine my heart and realize that if there's anything in there that is going to receive any ounce of adoration more than God, then I have to tear it down with fierceness. And when we understand this command, what does it say about God? It means this, that God does not want to share his worship that belongs solely to him with anything or anyone else. Listen very carefully. Worship is not true worship unless God is the only one who is worshipped. Worship is not true worship unless God is the only one being worshiped. He doesn't want to share it with anybody. And we see that in Exodus 32, don't we? Aaron makes a golden calf. And once he makes it, he says, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And then he goes, oh no. He builds an altar and he goes, hold on. Tomorrow we shall serve the Lord. We shall sacrifice to the Lord. And that's in verse 4 and 5. And we realize how God responded to that. God wasn't there in the manifest presence with Moses saying, Oh, okay, they they want to worship the golden calf and they want to worship me. That's okay. He totally dismissed the fact that Aaron built an altar for the Lord. And he realized that even if it was shared worship, it was altogether worthless worship because there was still something else that they have elevated to the place of God where he belongs alone. And we think of idolatry as anything I love more than God, which is true. That is an idol. Anything that I esteem or adore or sacrifice more to than my Lord. Absolutely true. But we cannot negate this category of idolatry, which is probably more pre- prevalent than we think. And it is this believing God to be something when in actuality he is not that thing. That's an idol. So I might have my understanding of God. And I might even slap on it the name of Jesus. And I might pray to this God. I might think that I am serving this God. But if it is not the God that is recorded in this book, it is an idol. See, these Canaanites, they built their altars, they built their pillars through their own imaginations, through their own thinking, thinking this is what God is like. They've created a God in their own image. And the thing is, many professing Christians can do the very same, not by loving a sports team more than God, not by loving money more than God, but by seeing God in their own way. And it's usually with language like this. My God would never do such a thing. My God would never say that. My God would never exclude this kind of people group. And if it's anything that is directly and contrary to the word of God, it is no different than a shrine dedicated to Baal. So what is the instruction concerning worship? In these verses Is this, remove from my heart and yours anything that would try to challenge the place where God belongs, and that is above everything. And remove also from my heart anything that is contrary or contradicts who God is in the word, lest I create an idol in my own image. Destroy all idols. Then we come to verse 5 and 6 and we see another set of instructions. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of all your herd and of all your flock. The second place, the second guideline is this understanding of location. First thing was destruction. Now it's location. God had in mind for the Israelites a geographical location, a centralized place in which would bring the people together to seek him, to offer to him, to sing unto him, and to celebrate certain feasts. It was at a specific address. This is where he wanted them to be. Now, this is a Bible quiz. He says, out of all your tribes... I will choose a name for myself or a place for myself and place my name there. Does anybody know which tribe that was? If you say say it aloud. Which tribe did he choose? Which tribe? Where would be the place where he would place his temple? Which tribe out of all 12 tribes? Judah. You're right. It's Judah. And here's the verse Psalm 78, verse 68. It'll put up on the screen. Psalm 78, verse 68. Look what the scripture says of what God did. It says, But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Mount Zion, which he loves. He chose the tribe of Judah. Mount Zion, which he loves. Now, that is significant because if you've read in Genesis who Judah was, he wasn't the most spectacular individual. Um, He was bound to sexual sin in a very grievous way. And you would think God chose the tribe of Judah to place his temple. Never mind that. God chose Judah for the name of Christ to be associated with. And you think, why? If you've been through that study in Genesis, you realize why. You had Reuben, you had uh, Simeon and Levi. Reuben slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi literally tore up an entire village by the sword. Then you come to Judah, and you think God is working his way down the list. You come to Judah, and he's performing these gross sexual acts. And he stops at Judah, and he chooses Judah for many wonderful blessings. And why? Does anybody know? Why the tribe of Judah? If you were there for Genesis many years ago, you would have remembered. But does anybody know why Judah, instead of Reuben, Simeon, or Levi? Because he repented. Because he repented. Because he repented. There was no evidence of repentance from his first three older brothers. But when it came to Judah, he realized his wrong. He realized that the woman that planned that whole thing for him to see that he slept with her when she was pregnant, Tamar, he goes, She is more righteous than I He confesses lack of righteousness. God recognizes as repentance. And oh, does God bless you and me when we repent sincerely. The, the, The things that open in our lives concerning our relationship with God, when we acknowledge our sins specifically, and we vow to God that by His grace we will never turn to it, and we know we can't do that apart from His power. Oh, the doors that will swing open concerning the blessings of God that will flood upon your life and mine. He chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. Now you've read the Psalms, I'm sure. You've read different portions of Scripture where you saw Zion. What's Zion? Or where is Zion, to be more specific? You're right. It's in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. Zion is synonymous with the city of Jerusalem. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So when you see Zion, depending on the context, it is more specifically speaking about the city of Jerusalem. So the temple was parked, it was placed in that place and this is what God had in mind in his guidelines for worship he says there's a specific location that I'm going to put there for you to come and perform all these acts of worship but then something happens in the new covenant I'm sure we're all familiar with it Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman the Samaritan woman says that they have their own mountain in which they worship God and the Jews have their own mountain in which they worship God which is this mountain and Jesus says an astounding thing in John chapter 4 what does he say this mountain, but the in John 4:21, he says, "Woman, listen. There is an hour coming, very soon, which neither on that mountain that you're speaking of, or the mountain that the Jews recognize, in which people will worship. There is a time coming in which there will be people who will worship the Father." verse 23, in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus trying to say here? He's trying to say this. He's assuring her and that day has already passed that there is a moment coming, a transitional period in which location has little to do with worship. The focus on worship is no longer going to be about where. It's going to shift and turn to how and who. And that's what he says. That they will worship me in spirit and in truth. And the Father seeks these kinds to worship him. And so the shift is completely different now. It's about how I worship in spirit and truth and who I worship, the Father. And that's a whole other thing for another time. But this is what I want to pull out of Deuteronomy 12 for us. That although there was that transition in the New Covenant there is still practical elements to understanding this principle of location of worship that is still valuable to you and I. It is not a necessary thing, but it is a valuable thing. He wants him to come to a specific place to worship God. Why? I think there's two reasons for that. Look in Deuteronomy 12 and look at verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice... You and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Look at verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. I, I believe there is something here concerning the location that God has more in mind than to... Bring a difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. It is true, there is a difference. But there is a valuable thing happening here and it is this. That worship is not an individualistic experience. By bringing these people to the same location, what would happen as a byproduct is that especially during the feast, a handful of times a year where people would trek from different parts of Israel to come to this one moment to worship God, it would unify their hearts and it would edify them in the faith, in their devotion and commitment to God as they would do so corporately. And though we are not limited to an address, though we're not, we don't have to do pilgrimage to go to a place three times a year like they have to, the Bible does instruct us to worship corporately, to come together as believers and to experience the blessings that come from Unifying our hearts and our voices before the Lord in this thing called worship. You know, there's a beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians 14 26. Paul tells us what's supposed to happen when Christians come together. Look what he says in verse 26, it's chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. What then, brothers? When you come together, what should happen? Something needs to happen when we come together. Each one has a hymn, a lesson a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. So God in His wisdom, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, knows that when there is a gathering of people who are linked by faith towards a true and living God, the purpose of that is for an edification in our faith. We throw around, hear me very carefully please, we we throw around this word fellowship very loosely. But true biblical fellowship includes, as a result, a building up of my faith. When I get together with other believers, I should leave that group of believers encourage and strengthen in my walk with the Lord. If I go to my group of professing believers who are friends, and they remove the encouragement and the longing to know God more, if they, if they encourage me for worldliness and, and things that are not for the things of God, I have to be very careful about this thing that I call fellowship. I'm not saying every time you come together you have to pull out a guitar and sing. I'm not saying every time you come together that it has to be a sermon, but what the Bible does tell us is that it can be simple as conversation. It can be simple as praying for one another. If that's not the case with our fellowship, what difference do we have when we get together than the world? Right? And I always have to make this disclaimer because people think I'm like anti-fun. It's like a thing, like Daniel Batarsi is anti-fun. You can have fun. You can laugh. I think Christians should be the most joy-filled, the most enjoyable people to be with in the world. But fun and joy and enjoyment is not an experience outside of my walk with the Lord. In fact, maximum fun, maximum joy, maximum enjoyment is when I get together with like-minded brothers and sisters. And whatever activity I do, I know that I am still in the Spirit. I know that at any moment it doesn't get awkward when we bring up Jesus. You'd be amazed how Jesus becomes an awkward thing even amongst professing believers when you bring him up over dinner or lunch. But when they come together, Paul says, there should be a building up. And this is God's wisdom when we come together, that there's an edification that occurs as a byproduct. But I think there's a second principle for God to give this location element. I think it proves something of dedication on behalf of the people. So to go to the temple from wherever I am, my neighborhood, that, that trek to get to that place to give my sacrifice is a sacrifice in itself. That for me to, to get there is an expression of, Lord, I want to be before your presence. Now, this is how beautiful God is. He never puts a burden on anyone, even in this command, that is unrealistic. That is unrealistic, right? So look here in verse 21 of chapter 12. See what the Bible says. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name there is too far from you. So God has in mind, if, there is a, if you're living in an area in which this place is too far from you to perform regular offerings... Look what he says here, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you and you may eat it within your towns wherever you desire. See, we have this understanding, unfortunately, it's a false understanding that the God in the Old Testament put these demands that were beyond the human capability But even in this chapter, in the Old Covenant, he goes, I understand that if you live in a certain place that is too far to perform these offerings on a regular basis, stay where you are and do what you need to do. Yes, there are three pilgrimages a year where you have to go and you have to come. Absolutely. But God is a realistic God. And God does not put burdens for the sake of putting burdens on us. That is not his desire. Nevertheless, there was a requirement for the people to come to this place and it would determine their determination. But listen, the only thing that would really be sacrificed as they would come for these feasts from all over Israel, the only thing that would really be sacrificed was one thing, convenience. Convenience. And for someone not to perform these acts, to go and to visit the Lord in this way, few times a year, would really show something about where their heart was concerning their love for the Lord in terms of worship. Now we might not see that in Deuteronomy 12, but there's a portion in the Bible where once Israel split into two kingdoms where the king of Israel against the king of Judah that had the temple came up with a plan to try to persuade them not to go down to Judah and worship God. You know why? The king of Israel was afraid, Jehoshaphat. He goes, listen, if they go down for these feasts, they might now, as a result, serve their king and turn against me. So I need to come up with a plan. I need to come up with a plan for them to remain here and not go down to Jerusalem to perform worship lest they ally themselves with Rehoboam and turn against me. Look at what Jehoshaphat says as a strategy in 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 28 Whereupon this is the King James Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold sound familiar He made two calves of gold and said unto them it doesn't say this in the ESV it says it in the King James New King James and NASB He says it this way it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem It's too much for you Says who Didn't we just read that God knew the limits of the people? Didn't God understand what would be too much and what would be just fine? But Jehoshaphat appeals to their convenience, to their own comfort. And he says, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Dan. So he knew what strings to pull to convince them not to come and worship God and what he did was appeal to their convenience and this is so true today, is it not? That so much of true worship has been sacrificed on the altar of convenience. The culture of convenience getting as much as I can without giving anything or little as much as I could, that culture of convenience, if it seeps into the church through people, ministries will drop down like flies. And like Israel with Jehoshaphat, if we give ourselves to a heart posture that is a slave to convenience, we will create a breeding ground for idols in our lives. Jehoshaphat appealed to their convenience, and two golden calves popped out of that. And if I myself bow to the idol of comfort and convenience, there is no telling to what I will worship, including me. So then there are these mindsets that can come into the church because of this surrender to convenience that really affects how church operates. So stuff like this, I'll only come to church if it benefits me. Like nobody would say it that way, but it's packaged differently depending on the service that they would want that would benefit them. I'll only come to church if it benefits me. I'm holding my tongue back from giving specific examples. I will only serve, I'll only serve if it doesn't affect other non-essential activities that I really want to do. I'll only serve if it doesn't affect any of that. There are essential things that we need to do and there needs to be balance in life. Just like God said here, if it is too much for you, you don't need to come. Remember, God is realistic. But then there's convenience. I'll only give if I know that I'm gonna get something back in return. That's the only measure of my giving. If I know that I'm gonna get something back, no problem. Convenience, making it about myself, trying to organize my worship, trying to frame my devotion to God in a way in which it costs me the less. And the less it costs me, the more I'll get involved. The more I have to get involved, the less you'll see of me. This understanding is detrimental to the local church. What this tells me is that true worship, no matter how it is expressed, always includes some measure of sacrifice. So he talks about destruction He talks about location, and now we come to verse 30, and we see that there's a method, and it's a perfect segue into the last point that we made, that God's prescription on worship, He chose a location, but He's also going to choose the way in which they ought to worship. And the temptation of the people was two-part. We are at verse 30, but I want you to look at verse 8 quickly. Look what the Lord says, You shall not do according all that we are doing here today. Everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. So the first temptation for the people of Israel was this, that I can fall into the trap of worshiping God, serving God, relating to God in a way that I think that is right. It's a personal thing. And the second temptation is not necessarily the way I think I need to worship God or serve God or relate to God or speak to God or sing to God or talk about God or study about God. The second part is verse 30. Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. The first temptation is falling into the trap of worshiping God the way I think I need to worship God. And the second temptation is to fall into the trap of relating to God, worshiping God, serving God, the way the world operates. He says, take care lest you inquire about how these people worship their gods and you imitate that and you bring that into how you worship me. It's a very dangerous thing to look to the world, to look to other religions, to look at how other organizations function And to glean ideas from them that are outside of the bounds of scripture and to do church that way. In fact, it can be very tempting from the congregational point of view to begin to demand. And from the leadership point of view to begin to implement practices and events or whatever it may be in a way that is actually unbiblical. It's a very real temptation. And there are different ways that this happens on different scales. And a preacher gave a wonderful illustration. This is not something that I came up with. This is something that I heard, but I would love to relay it to you, and I hope it blesses you. He gave this wonderful illustration of A king and his wife and a steward, a servant of the king. And this wife was beautiful, pure in dress, marvelous, splendid, uh, modest, all these great qualities. She was exactly what the king wanted and desired from her as a bride. And this steward was in charge of taking care of the needs of this bride, of serving this bride which was an expression of their service to the king. But one day, this king told the steward that he was going to take a long trip and he wasn't going to be back for a long time. And so he gives the steward, the servant, a a list of instructions. Because he didn't know, the servant didn't know when he was going to come back. He just knew that he was going to be gone for quite a while. And it was meticulous. It was exact. There was no confusion to which how he was supposed to serve the bride and meet her needs and take care of her from head to toe. The servant received it and he pledged his allegiance to the king and the king left. Things were fine after the first few days, maybe first few weeks. But then the servant began to realize that the people of the kingdom, people of the world, the people that were outside, began to show disinterest towards his bride. They kind of got bored of her. They began to compare her. And the steward was nervous. Because he thought to himself, if this people continue in this way, then the king will ultimately suffer in his effectiveness of a ruler and as an influencer. And so the servant began to come up with his own ideas. And he came to the bride and began to do things that were outside of the list of instructions that were given he began to change her dress he began to place things on her face and change the way she looked and called her to walk in a certain way and by the end of it she almost looked like a prostitute one day the king came back and saw her in that state what do you think would happen to that servant And that's an analogy of how leaders will be held accountable of how they deal with God's church, the bride. The bride is not called to appeal to the world. The bride is called to be served for the pleasure of the king. And whether the world thinks whatever they want of the bride has no relevance, in the end, the king wants a bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And as God's people, especially in leadership, we must do it the way the king ordered for it to be so. We don't dress up the church the way we think she needs to be dressed up. So you have churches that want to play degrading secular music in their services, specifically amongst youth and young adults, to try to drag them in and impress them. And there are churches that are trying to convince their preachers to pull away from the Word of God and to be less, maybe, intense in their delivery, to not preach, but to be softer and to make it more psychological and philosophical and scientific. Never mind the written word, it's it's ancient, it has no relevance. And there's even trends today. And I might step on some toes on this one, that convince people to send out surveys into the neighborhood to try to ask people and inquire to find out what they are looking for in a church. Since when do we go to the unbelieving to figure out what they want out of a church? God has given you and I everything we need concerning how the church should operate. And so God gave a warning to them and says, be careful lest you inquire to figure out how they serve their gods and you begin to translate that into how you relate to me. I'll make it clear what I'm looking for. There's something else even here for just an individual personal holiness thing. Listen, he's saying, be careful with your curiosity. We live in an information age where everything is available to us, but guess what? We don't have to figure everything out. If we are not careful with our curiosity, we can actually fall into a trap in which we dig too deep into certain things and find ourselves attracted to the very thing that we're trying to gain information on. This can happen on all types of levels. We must be very discerning in what we expose ourselves to even in the name of research, even in the name of trying to figure things out. I hope that makes sense and I don't have to be too specific with that. So we gave a method and here we are in the last point of the Bible study there was an attitude that he was looking for. So look at verse 7 again with me. And hear the repetition. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Come to verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants. Then you come down to verse 18. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God, in the place of the Lord your God will choose you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levi, who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Notice the repetition. The repetition here, at least three times in this chapter, is that God was looking for a certain attitude behind the actions. And that there would be a genuine, generated joy in the very acts that they were performing before God. If God was merely satisfied with the external, mechanical, ritualistic actions, He would have not included these things in this chapter. If God, listen, is not concerned about our emotional state to some degree, of what our hearts feel, feel and not just what our minds know then these things would not be included not including the, the verses in the psalms and all the other places in scripture that very much speak about our affections but our affections are very important to God our heart being included in what we do whether it's from singing to cleaning to preaching to giving is very very important in fact When God says, you give, I'm looking for a what? A cheerful giver. And so we see these clues, and they're not really clues, they're blatant, that says, I'm looking for a tie between the knowledge of truth and the emotion in your heart, the knowing in your heart, to be a part of your expression of worship. And we just heard, though, that sometimes there's a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes I'm not there. True, very true. Sometimes there's spiritual warfare. Sometimes there's so many things in which we almost feel numb and we yet still choose to come on a Friday night. We choose to sing songs and sit under a Bible study when in fact there is nothing in us that is necessarily feeling it. Nevertheless, if the measure of all of our worship never includes true joy, true cheer, true delight, true pleasure, there is something wrong. We have to put our fingers on the pulse of our worship and see if it is faintly beating or if it is beating at all. Am I cheerful when I give? Am I attentive when I sing? I'm I'm sure we can all testify to moments in which we are just saying words and we've maybe even caught ourselves saying, what did I just say? what did I just say to God? Like, what did I actually just sing to him? I heard a preacher say this one time, that they moved from one song to the other in their hymns. And before he even moved on as they transitioned, he stopped himself and he realized, I don't even know what I just sang to God. And so he told himself, I'm not even gonna sing the next song. He said, Lord, I'm going back to the old song. And he read through the hymn in his hymn book and made sure that he meant every word that he was saying to God. Maybe not in the moment, but am I conscience of God? Maybe not in the moment as I'm serving Him, but before I come to serve Him, knowing that I'm going to serve Him, or after I serve Him, am I I aware that the service is really unto the living Christ? Here's proof, and it goes back to our first point, that if the internal component of worship is not present, then the external is actually reduced to insignificant. Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9. This is the words of Jesus. Matthew 15, 8 and 9. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Look at verse 9. In vain do they worship me. In vain do they worship me. Now please do not fall into an unnecessary sense of condemnation. If again you've ever come to a place where your heart wasn't necessarily beating for joy in the moment of your worship on any level. I'll be quite honest, there are times in which even getting to go somewhere in an evangelistic thing is not necessarily, I'm not feeling it all the time. If all of our devotion and worship was based upon how we felt, we wouldn't be doing much worship. But the underlining reality of my heart, really, like, what's there? Because there's another reality of this whole thing of serving on a worshiping God. And it is this. Listen, you have people that are doing it that have literally no internal component of love for God. That's what I'm touching So preaching becomes a profession, worship becomes a performance, giving becomes a duty, personal devotion becomes a mandate, and there is no sign of life, of vigor, of fragrance, of yes, Lord, I'm doing this because down deep inside, you are supreme and you are above everything in my life. And how you know if you're doing things for the Lord, even if you don't feel it, is when you have been convinced in your life that he is above all things. And the very thing that's motivating you to do what you're doing, even if you don't feel it, is the knowledge that he's worthy of it anyway. That's what we need. But I say this because Jesus gave a very strong word concerning the most religious people in that day. And he says, they are worshiping me in vain. In vain. Because what? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They have elevated tradition above the truth. And so it's possible to have my heart not included in what is looking like external worship, but in the eyes of God, because my heart is not either truly saved. You know, you can be in ministry and not be in Christ, right? I didn't say that. Jesus said it. He says, Many people on that day will say, Lord, Lord, they preach, they've done miracles. And he goes, I don't know you. Yeah, but I sang for you at the conference. Yeah, but I don't know you. But I preach for you. But I don't know you. I, I just don't. I, I don't know you. Somebody can be in ministry and not be in Christ. I remember reading an article about a, a, a person who put up a certain statement on Facebook concerning homosexuality, I believe. And another person commented on it and very rudely disagreed. It wasn't in compassion at all. And the person who that post he was a minister clicked on the profile to see who this person was and he realized that this individual who had totally disagreed with him ultimately disagreeing with the scriptures was on a worship team at a certain church and so he personally messaged that individual and says i see that you're a part of a worship team of a certain church and you disagree with my statement on the clear stance of god's design for sexuality what's going on and he goes oh you saw that yeah I'm a part of a worship team at a church, but uh, my dad is a part of the ministry and they needed somebody to play on the worship team, but I'm a total atheist. It's possible to be in ministry, not be in Christ. It's possible to display an external display of some kind of worship, but their hearts are far from me. And so here from Deuteronomy 12, we have these simple guidelines for worship. Destroy the idols. Location, yes, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to do pilgrimage. But there is a valuable lesson there about coming together and worshiping corporately. Do not neglect meeting with one another, Hebrews 10.25. We see something about method, that we are prescribed to this word about how we do church, not about how the world does church or how other religions do their services and the attitude. A heart that is not disconnected from my acts. And when I feel like my heart is disconnected from my acts, what pushes me and fuels me is the knowledge of truth of who Jesus is in my life. And when we do that, true worship comes before the throne of God. And so right now, as a response to this, I think the most appropriate thing is to do what? Worship. And worship him and mean the words that we say and give unto him the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let's pray. Father, you demand worship because you're worthy of it. And Lord, we give unto you what is due unto you, Lord. A sacrifice of praise. But Lord, not just in our songs. Help us live in worship. And Lord, maybe even tonight there are circumstances, situations that are weighing down on that attitude element of it. And Lord, when we don't have a reason necessarily in our emotions or affections to give you what you deserve, let truth drive our actions. Let the knowledge in our conscience convince us that you are worthy of it all. And so Lord, may this church and every component that we've covered be pleasing unto you as it relates to worship. Thank you that even in Deuteronomy 12, you have something to say to us. May we be a people that live the way you desire for us to live. And may we see you as a father that wants us to worship in spirit and truth. Yes, you are a king. Yes, you are master. Yes, you are sovereign. Yes, you are ruler of rulers. But you want us to still relate to you as father and to communicate to you the way you deserve. Receive it, Lord, and be blessed. In Jesus' name we pray.